Spirit of God, we want more and more of you to embrace us today. And Father, we want to hear from you today. So Father, I pray for Stuart today as he brings the message to us. Give us a receptive heart and ears to hear today. 
That's our heart's cry today. Lord, we welcome you in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are delighted that you are here today. It is a great day of worship, a great day to be in the house of the Lord. And we are so thankful and privileged that all of you are here to join us in worship together today. If you are our first-time guest, if you're visiting with us today, we are especially glad that you are here. If you would, take that perforated part in your order of worship, tear that off. Let us know that you are here, and let us know how we can pray for you. Our staff prays for everybody. All of those requests every Tuesday afternoon at 1.30, and it's a special time for our staff to be able to do that. And if you are visiting with us today, would you do us the great privilege of joining our pastor and his wife at the end of our service out in the foyer so that you might receive a copy of his book, The Privilege of Worship. It's our gift to you. Your gift to us is your presence here with us today. This is our gift to you so you can take something home with you and take a little bit of First Baptist Church home with you, and hopefully that you'll come back. Amen? Amen. It is that season that we sing about the joyous, empty cross at Calvary. Would you join us as we sing this great hymn of our faith? Let's sing together. Why don't you stand and let's sing together. Church family, here sounds so good today. Thank you for joining in worship this morning. Today is wrapping up our official emphasis for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering for North American Missions. And to date, we've given about a fourth of our goal of $16,000. And I know many of you have not yet given. You're wanting to do that. So we encourage you to do that uh, sometime in the near future so that we can try to meet that goal, making sure that North American Missions is taken care of. 
This video this morning that we're going to see, last week told us kind of about what the North American Mission Board does, and it's that just wide range of services from church planning to disaster relief to chaplaincy to all kind of things. And today, we're going to look at the theme for Annie Armstrong Easter offering this year. So if you'll turn your attention to the screens, and as you do, pray for our missionaries all across North America. This is what the world looks like sometimes. Look at faces in a crowd and it's easier to see the crowd, not the faces. It's the way we are. But zoom in to one face, one person at a time. And if you look close enough, you might see what we see. The girl who gets high every day before school so she won't feel anything. Or the just immigrated Chinese mom who teaches her kids there's no God because that's all she's ever known. Where the world sees a crowd, we see a person close up. We're the ones who speak hope to them. We're the missionaries you send when you give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. We see what hope can do and we can't sit still because this hope, it's the hope of the gospel. It's a powerful thing. It pushes us to leave whatever is comfortable. It shows the lost, someone is looking for them. And it gives you and us a mission to complete together. In Puerto Rico and Portland and Montreal and Miami, in college towns, in small towns, and big cities, in every language, in every North American life, Jesus saves. We've seen it. And all he asks is that we, missionaries, churches, everyday believers, share what we have. Give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And this is what happens. New churches start. Those who are far off are brought near. And together, we send hope. Sing with us, forever reign.
so thankful that we can sing about the name of Jesus, for there's no other name greater. Lord, we pause at this time to be thankful that we can worship you today in spirit and in truth. And Lord, now as we come to this portion of the time in our service, when we worship with our tithes and offerings, we ask your blessings on each person, each gift may be used to honor and glorify your name. For it's in your name I pray. Amen.
Y'all like that? It's good stuff. Kevin, do you want that? Sorry. <laughs> well, you need to be here tonight because if you think this morning's good, tonight's going to be even better. We're going to have a special time of testimony as we return to thinking about our home groups, whisper, hearing from God. If you didn't participate in that, that's fine. We're going to spend about 15, 20 minutes talking about that. We're going to have some worship. Then we're going to hear from our missionaries to Africa, Rich and Lisa Finch. They're here this morning. Y'all want to stand up? Let us see you and your family. And um, I wish, yeah, give them a hand because you support these folks. And uh, Rich will be sharing tonight, and if he had on his coat, Rich, hold up your coat there. His presentation is going to be about as bright and colorful as the coat that he's wearing today. Uh, you'll enjoy Rich. He's, Rich and Lisa were friends back of ours in college. They're Louisiana College grads, and so it's wonderful to have people home who've literally been on the other side of the world sharing the gospel. So thank you guys for being here tonight. They stayed in our missionary residence last night, one of the ministries that we're able to extend from our church. So be here tonight, 530. We're going to have finger food. Foods, a great time. Be sure to be here for that special time. Around the world, persecution happens every single day. Just this morning, I used the Voices of the Martyrs prayer app to pray for Ethiopian, for Christians in Ethiopia who are being persecuted by Muslims there. There in Ethiopia, churches have been destroyed and Christians have been beaten or killed for their faith. Our Christian brothers and sisters around the world are suffering physically for their faith every day. According to Open Doors, another group that tracks um, persecution around the world, every month around the world, 255 Christians are killed, 104 are abducted, 180 Christian women are raped, sexually harassed, or forced into marriage, 66 churches are attacked, and 160 Christians are detained without trial and imprisoned. 215 million Christians experience high levels of persecution in the countries on Open Doors World Watch List. That represents one in 12 Christians worldwide. And you're not going to hear about that on CNN. Here in the United States, we're more fortunate. No one's killed or abducted for their faith, but there is a growing religious intolerance. As Mary Edderstott writes, something new has snaked its way into the village square, an insidious intolerance for religion that has no place in a country founded on religious freedom. The stories of persecution in America are much different than those in other parts of the world, but they are frequent. Colorado Baker faces lawsuits for refusing to bake a cake for a homosexual couple. A New Jersey teacher was suspended for giving a student a Bible. A football coach was placed on leave for praying on the field. Hobby Lobby spent millions defending their right to live out their faith in their own family-owned business. A Marine was court-martialed for refusing to remove a Bible verse on her desk. Christian groups like InterVarsity Christian Fellowship have been expelled from some college campuses. Groups like the American Family Association have been labeled hate groups by some other groups. And most recently, a Ryder University dean resigned over the school's debate over Chick-fil-A. Jim Dennison writes, It's hard for evangelical Christians not to feel that our culture is increasingly antagonistic toward our faith and values. Our culture is changing rapidly. And if you claim to be a Christian... The question is, can you handle it? If you haven't already, you will face intolerance or persecution. Someone will challenge your faith. Someone will attack your biblical worldview. It may be mild or it may cost you your job. Uh, it may make you uncomfortable with some peers or it may cost you a friendship. Can you handle it? Persecution is not always violent. Persecution wears many faces. Most often it is reflected in an attitude and not necessarily in action. Still, the word we translate persecution has the sense to chase like a wild beast. 
So whether that chasing happens with a sword or a lawsuit or a rant on social media or something else, the question remains, can you handle it? In our text, Jesus prepares his apostles and us for life in a hostile world. And so please turn, if you haven't already, in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 15, verses 18 and following. Jesus has just finished his teaching about abiding and abounding in him as the vine. And he rolls now into a challenging discussion about facing hatred and persecution in the world. And Jesus has told his apostles that they must love one another. And now we find out why. And it's because the world is going to hate them. Look at verse 18 and following. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Now, to the, God, to the apostles first hearing these words, they may have been a shock. Jesus had faced some pretty tense situations, but would this now all come upon them as well? Now, while this may have been a shock to Peter and the others in that uh, area as they were walking toward the Mount of Olives to prepare for a, a night that they had never seen before, this kind of statement did not come as a shock to John's readers who were reading what he had written for the first time some decades later. See, sometimes it's easy to forget that New Testament writings were written down several decades after the events they describe. And John's gospel was the last of the gospels to be written, and it was one of the last New Testament books to be written. And so, therefore, about 60 years had passed between the moment when Jesus first uttered these words and when John wrote them down. And during those 60 years, everything in the book of Acts had occurred. Paul's missionary journeys had all taken place. Hundreds of churches had been planted, and the church of Jesus Christ had grown from 120 people at the beginning of Acts to tens of thousands of people by the end of Acts, spread all around the Mediterranean world. But most of all, during that same period of time, persecution of Christians had grown and begun. And in fact, the period of time during which John wrote his gospel was when persecution was intense, though sporadic. And in the region of Asia Minor, where John's ministry was housed and focused, it was often very intense. And so the believers who were reading this gospel for the first time knew, that, knew what Jesus was talking about because they were under the constant pressure of persecution every day. And some decades before, Jesus knew that this persecution was going to come. And he warned his disciples, and, and the readers of John's gospel were experiencing it firsthand, and so are Christians still around the world today. And so that begs the question, why does the world hate Christians? Well, Jesus indicates that anyone who follows him will be hated, and that word hate is just as strong as it sounds. But why does the world system hate Christians? Well, in this passage, Jesus gives us some reasons. First, we cause the world to look at Jesus. Consider again verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And why is that? Look over to verse 22 through 25. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law, they hated me without reason. One reason the world hates Christians is we cause the world to look at Jesus. And whenever someone looks at Jesus, they see themselves 
for who and what they really are. He gives a perfect reflection. Jesus says that he came and he gave a searching gaze. You see, his searching gaze of his perfect life looked beyond the exterior self-righteousness of the Jews of Jesus' day. His penetrating glance looked into the hearts of those Pharisees who on the outside looked perfect because they kept every single jot and tittle of the law, but inside they were wasting away, so much so that Jesus called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Verse 22, Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would, be, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. If Jesus had not come, they would not be guilty. However, since he has come, they are guilty. Why? Because you can't be guilty if you don't know you're wrong. But now because Jesus came, they know they're wrong and therefore they are without excuse. When they saw themselves compared to the perfection of Jesus, they saw just how far short they had fallen from the glory of God. And that's still the case today. People hate Christians not because we hate them, because we don't. They hate us because they hate Jesus and they can't stand to look at him. A person living in sin cannot stand seeing his or her sin. And when you're confronted with your sin, you can only do one of two things. You can either repent of that sin and turn from it or you can refuse to believe it's sin and try to justify it. And the world refuses to repent and justify it. What they want to do is to take the mirror of Jesus and smash it on the ground so they don't have to see the sin anymore. It's a lie of Satan that if we get rid of this image, we can then go on with life. But it is what the world believes. In fact, Kent Hughes tells us the story of an African chief, in this case a woman who happened to visit a mission uh, station. And he says that hanging outside the missionary's cabin on a tree was a mirror and this um, tribal chieftain came up and looked into the mirror and saw for the first time the war paint that was put on her face. Never before had she seen her own face. She didn't have access to mirrors. Somebody else applied that. And, and she was horrified by the face looking back at her from within the tree. You see, she didn't know who it was. And so she went to the missionary and she said, who is that looking at me with all those faces back from the tree? And the missionary said, well, that is your own reflection. And this tribal chieftain said, no, it can't be. And the missionary said, yeah, it is. And he took the mirror off the tree to show her it wasn't in the tree. And showed her the picture and she saw that and she said I I must have that and he said well she said what what will you take for it I'll I'll pay you he said well it's not for sale I I need the mirror She, she insisted and pushed and finally he capitulated and let her take the mirror and exclaiming the the chieftain took that mirror in her hand and she said I will never have this making faces at me again and she threw it down on the ground and broke it and that is what the Jews did to Jesus And that's what the Jews and Romans did to early Christians. And that's what those who still reject Christ today still do to Jesus and to Christians. They crush the mirror. The world hates Christians because Christians cause the world to look to Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. Second, the other reason is we do not conform to the world. Look at verse 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. If Christians went along with everything the world has to offer, they wouldn't have a problem with us. Uh, When they say, let's allow abortions and infanticide, and we said, oh, that sounds great. Yes, let's do that. There would not be a problem whatsoever. But we say, no, that is wrong. That is murder. And so they have a problem with us. When the world says, oh, homosexuality isn't a sin. It's just a bent. Some people are made like that. That's what we need to accept. Accept that. Accept homosexual marriage. Accept all that. And when the church says, whoa, hang on a second. No, homosexuality is a sin. We see it right along there with adultery and fornication and bestiality and pedophilia. And the world says, we got a problem with that. And when they say, 
Oh, there are many ways to God. You, you, you folks believe what you want to believe. We'll believe what we want to believe. And those people over there can believe whatever they want to believe. And, and if we would say, oh, okay, that's fine. Yeah, just, just everybody do their own thing. There wouldn't be any problem. But we say, no, there's only one way to heaven, and that is Jesus. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so they have a problem. It goes on and on concerning all types of issues. It's a conflict of worldviews. The world builds its view on a justification of sin, explaining it away, and personal gratification. And we, the church, build the worldview on repentance of sin and bringing glory to God instead of gratification to self. It's completely opposite. Their standard is self. Our standard is the Bible. The world and the church are in opposition to each other, and we always will be because we serve two different masters. The devil is the prince of the world. Jesus is the king of the church. There is a difference. In the first century, the persecution came largely from the Romans because Christians refused to practice Caesar worship. It seemed like an innocent enough, simple enough thing. All you had to do was once a year or so go to the temple in your town or region that was dedicated to the emperor, offer a little incense on the altar, pay, altar, pay some homage to Caesar, and go on about your business, and, and you were a good Roman citizen. But the, see, the Christians and Jews said, mm-mm. We're not going to worship Caesar because we only worship God. And so because they refused to worship the emperor, they were seen as insurrectionist and disloyal to Rome. Persecution continued and, and persecution came to Christians because they put Christ first. And persecution always comes to the person who puts Christ first. Christians do not conform to the world, therefore the world hates Christians. Third, the world, Jesus says, is spiritually ignorant. Look mainly at verse 21. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Lost people are going to act like lost people. Lost people, the people of the world, are spiritually ignorant. And that's not a put-down, it's simple fact. I'm ignorant of automobiles, that's why I go to a mechanic. I'm ignorant of taxes, that's why I'm taking my taxes to an accountant this week. I'm ignorant of medicine, that's why I go to a doctor. I'm ignorant of those worlds. I don't hate those worlds, but the world hates the Christian world. The world hates Christians because the world is spiritually ignorant about all of the truths, beginning simply with that Jesus is the Son of God. It begins with the fact that they do not know God. If Jesus is the way and the truth and then the life and they don't know him, then they are ignorant of the way to heaven, the truth by which the world should be uh, governed and how to have a real abundant life. And instead of their ignorance leading them to a search for wisdom and truth, their ignorance usually leads them to hatred. In the first century, non-believers persecuted the church largely out of ignorance. In, exist, in addition to the Romans persecuting Christians because of emperor worship, also when Christians celebrated the Lord's Supper, they would speak of eating the body and blood of Christ much as we do today. The language was purely symbolic. We know it's symbolic, but the Romans took it literally. And so they accused the early Christians of being cannibals. Likewise, Christians called some of their gatherings love feast. And the pagans who worshiped the Greek and Roman gods with all kinds of sexual perversions concluded from their own understanding that a love feast could only be something like they might have, and so they labeled Christians as exceedingly immoral. Further, Christians talked about the spirit of fire or the fires of judgment, and so the pagans accused them of arson. Now, all of those things are kind of laughable when we think about it. Really, you think we're cannibals? Really, you think we're having these terrible things happen in the churches? Really, you think we're arsons? But it was, it was all based 
on spiritual ignorance. Some years ago, I gave a deposition as a character witness for one of our church members. And uh, the opposing counsel pursued a line of questioning with me that had absolutely nothing to do with the case. But I guess he was just trying to figure out what a Baptist preacher would say under oath. And so he started asking me this line of questions like, well, do you believe, do, do you really teach that Jesus is the only way to heaven? And I said, yes, sir, I do. That's what I believe the Bible says. He said, uh, so does that mean that you believe and you teach in your church that if I die without accepting Jesus, uh, I'll go to hell? Yes, sir. That's what. It means I was wondering if he was going to ask me questions leading himself down the plan of salvation, but he stopped it pretty soon because uh, I didn't change. But I, it, all of his questions, I could tell he did not buy what I was selling, that he had real problems with what I was saying, that it was convicting, but he was refusing to believe, and there was spiritual ignorance there. The chastisements that come to us because of our stances on various cultural or moral issues are based largely on spiritual ignorance. Just like when we stand up for true biblical marriage and we get labeled as hating people who are homosexual. We don't hate people who are homosexual. We just simply believe that's a sin. We love them. We want them to see the truth. And you know what happens? When people come to the light of God's word and God's truth, they, they get it. They understand. But as long as you are captured in the darkness and the lies of the enemy, you won't see it. You'll dwell in that spiritual ignorance. And so persecutions may come. In many different ways, in many different places, but they will come. The, the disciple is not above the master, Jesus said. The reformer Martin Luther actually reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. You see, living on easy street is not necessarily a sign that God is pleased with our lives. In fact, when we look at the book of Revelation... In the letters to the churches, which many of us on Wednesday nights just finished studying, and those of you in the precepts group studied last um, spring, I believe, last fall, uh, you find out that the church at Laodicea, unlike a lot of her sister churches, didn't have any persecution. The Romans weren't giving them any grief. The Jews weren't giving them any grief. Seemed like they were doing fine, except that Jesus said, you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Life on easy street doesn't necessarily mean that everything is fine. The absence of persecution can indicate that something is spiritually wrong. But at the same time, however, persecution is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. Okay? The godly are not under the sword at all times. Don't go around, oh, woe is me. I'm just being persecuted. Somebody looked at me wrong when I said Merry Christmas. That's not persecution. It's okay. Don't fall on your sword and bring on persecution unnecessarily. Live your life for Jesus. Stand up for Jesus. Speak up for Jesus. And if persecution comes, then handle it. But how do we do that? How do we handle it? How do we respond to such challenges? Well, Jesus tells us. The first thing he says is to press on. In verse 26 and 27, when the counselor comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. You've got to press on. Keep on testifying about Jesus. Don't give up. This is one reason Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to help us to be empowered to testify about Jesus. I agree with one writer who says, you can't, you can't out-nice your way and out-justice your way into cultural acceptance. Not if you hold traditional biblical views on gender and sexuality particularly. And it does not help the church or our fellow Christians to insist that, we assist, insist that we kindly acquiesce to the culture's demands. We have an opportunity to defend the faith as we defend each other. We've got to stand up for what we believe in. 
We've got to press on. We've got to stand firm. And so we need to do that. But as we do, we need to realize that not all unbelievers hate Christians. <laughs> In fact, many listen. But they can't listen if no one's testifying to them. So press on. Until Jesus came, as he says, people, uh, n people never had the opportunity to really know God in that perfect sense of Jesus' uh, incarnation. But once they saw Jesus and they heard his voice like they had never seen before, then they were without excuse. Before they simply kno didn't know, but now they knew. Before they didn't know and many couldn't know, but it's our job to make sure they do know. We are to lead people from darkness into light. Those of us who God has planted here in central Louisiana, that's our job. This is our mission field. But we are also responsible for all of North America and, yes, even the world. And that's why we send missionaries around the world. And we can't just do that by dropping a 10 or a 20. We've got to support them sacrificially and do so abundantly to make sure that the gospel can spread. And as we lead people from darkness into light, we do so lovingly. That may involve exposing sin, but we need to do it in a loving way. That's where some of our Christian brothers and sisters don't do so hot. We expose the sin, but we do so in a loving manner because we not only expose the sin, but we consistently point them to the remedy for that sin, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus opened the way for forgiveness of sin. He opened the way for us to face and overcome temptation. Jesus makes all things new, no matter what you've done or where you've been. And he brings new life. So keep standing up for Jesus. Keep speaking up for Jesus. Keep praying others to Jesus. Press on, and then Jesus says, but be ready. In verses 1 through 4 of 16, he says, All this I've told you so that you will not go astray. They'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They'll do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. The people who lived at the time when John was writing this were experiencing just that. The pagans thought they were doing just right. Just as the Jews who crucified Jesus thought they were doing right. Just as Paul, when he was Saul, was persecuting the church and thought he was doing God's work. They thought they were doing right, but they were blinded by the enemy. So be ready when persecution comes. No Christian who faces persecution can say, Oh, I didn't know this was going to happen. No Christian, when persecution comes, can go to Jesus and say, uh, What's this all about? Because the only response Jesus can give is, I told you so. I told you it was going to come. We are forewarned. But I love what several commentators said. They said to be forewarned is to be forearmed. So don't have a pity party. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Trust the Holy Spirit who we want more and more and more of as we sang today because we need more and more of him because he will be the one who helps us to know when to speak and when not to speak, to know how to respond or when not to respond. He'll give us the right words to say, to give us the courage when we need to say it, to prepare ourselves. We need to prepare ourselves by growing deeper in the faith and that begins with just a daily simple spending time in God's Word daily, as I talked about last week, reading God's Word, reflecting on that Word, and praying to the Lord. And then it comes to growing in your own discipleship and pouring into others so that the faith may multiply. That's why we've developed what we, we call the D groups. And that's just simply three to five of the same gender of person meeting in a small group on a regular basis according to your own schedule. It could be morning, noon, evening, whenever, and going through a curriculum that we've provided. And if you're interested in that kind of thing, we have people right now who are ready to lead a group. They just need somebody to meet with them. 
And I, have, I need two more people to meet with me in my group. And we want to get those things started. And if you want to learn more, we have uh, a place on our website under the ministries page, D Groups. You can have that, the, the training, the schedule. It's all there, downloadable. There's a link to be able to email me, and we'll get you started on that process. I'm looking forward to this being something that helps us grow and to be strong and ready to grow as believers. So be ready, Jesus says. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we do know who holds tomorrow, and so we trust in him. Today, all around the world, Christians face persecution. Some give their lives. Others give their livelihoods. Some face hostile actions while others face hostile words. And we say that sticks and stones break our bones, and they do, but we lie when we say words will never hurt us because they do. So persecution is going to come in one way or another at some time or another. The question is, can you handle it? Can you handle it? As we ponder that question for just a moment, if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes, I want you to think about your own life. Students, I want you to think about at school and your friends and where they are and the things that they're struggling with and the things they believe that are different from what you believe. Can you handle standing up for the truth? Adults, you've got family members who turn away from the truth of God's word. You work with colleagues, coworkers, maybe just friends, acquaintances. Can you handle it? When the persecution comes in word or action, can you stand up for your faith? It may also be that you're here this morning and you don't have a faith to stand on. And today needs to be the day of salvation when you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you do that very simply by realizing, yes, I know that I'm a sinner. All of us who name Christ here today have admitted that. And we didn't just admit it in the past, we admit it today, that we are sinners. But we also then turn to Christ and say, Lord, I need you to forgive me of my sins. Because there's nothing I could do to pay for my sins. I could never be good enough. I could never give enough money to missionaries or the homeless I can never go to church enough. What I need is for you to cover my sins with your blood that you shed on the cross. And that's because the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so life's greatest commodity of blood covers life's greatest offense against God, which is sin. And when that blood comes upon us, we are rendered righteous. When Jesus covers us, when the Lord looks at us, he only sees his perfect son. And we are set free of sin. Many of us today have made that decision. There's been some point in our life where we realized that we needed Jesus Christ to come into our lives and save us. And we've admitted that we're sinners. We receive Jesus' gift of forgiveness and salvation. But there are some in this room who've yet to receive that gift. And so we extend that invitation to you today, that gift. God's word says in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. What we get for what we do, what we're paid for our sins is death. But then that verse has the conjunction with unction, the but, that changes the whole scene where it says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You don't have to get the payment in death if you'll receive the gift for free and Jesus extends that gift to us all we must do is receive it in repentance and faith knowing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and in that moment we are set free and redeemed of our sin and so friend if that's you today and you've never received that gift of salvation then I encourage you to come forward this morning in just a moment we're going to stand and sing a song of invitation you can just come take me by the hand and say pastor in the moments right before 
this time, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. There's no magic words to do that. All you do is say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know you died on the cross. I want you to come into my life. You don't have to drop big, long theological words. You just have to mean it from your heart. Five-year-old kids pray it. Fifty-year-old adults pray it. Fifteen-year-old teenagers pray it. You just have to believe. Would you do that today? Lord Jesus, I pray that in this moment you'd speak to our hearts. Help us to do business with you. Holy Spirit, stir us. Lord, for those who have need of turning to you in salvation this morning, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that right now they're asking the Lord Jesus to come into their heart. And Lord, and I pray in a few moments that you'll give them the courage to step out and let us know so that we might celebrate with them. Lord, for others in this room who want to unite with a church family, I pray that you'd encourage them to come and be a part of this church today as they've been praying and seeking your will. And Lord, for all of us, help us to be determined to handle the persecution when it comes, however it comes. Lord, may we stand up for you because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Thank you, Lord for your presence in this place. Thank you for the truth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.